Great. Um, and with that, I, I'd like to thank you all for joining us for this special Grand Rounds in recognition of Dr. William Chambers. Um, and I'd especially like to extend a special welcome to Dr. Chambers' daughters, Virginia Day and Elizabeth Toll. We're really happy that you could join us today. And um, before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the person whose memory we honor with this lecture. Dr. William N. Chambers uh, began his civilian medical career after three years of distinguished service in the United States Army Medical, medical Corps, during which he received a Bronze Star. He served on the Dartmouth Medical School faculty for nearly 25 years and was a staff physician of the Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital, the Hitchcock Clinic, and the Veterans Admin Administration Hospital. He was respected throughout New England as a clinician and an educator and for his inspired writing on medical practice. He viewed medicine as a calling and had a unique concern for the melding of outstanding professional skills with a deep compassion for patients. The Chambers Lectureship was established to perpetuate the ideals of medical practice as exemplified by the life of Dr. Chambers, with particular emphasis on the perception of human values in the understanding and the relief of illness. And I'd like to share a couple of brief quotations from Dr. Chambers' writings that demonstrate these ideals and are particularly relevant to today's topic. In the words of Dr. Chambers, one of the most powerful tools in the relief of suffering is listening. Listening to the patient, to the friend, pour out his fears and worries. Listening actively, uncritically, lovingly. The physician must reach forth and know his patient, must learn to touch the suffering person centrally. This feeling depends a great deal on the richness of one's own emotional experience. These experiences are the basis of inner perception and intuition. It has to do with the matured use of the self, the knowledge of oneself. And I'm sure it's very clear to everyone who's familiar with Kathy Kirkland's professional ethos and approach to patients why we've invited her to be our speaker today. Dr. Kirkland is the Dorothy and John J. Byrne Distinguished Chair in Palliative Medicine, a professor of medicine and of the Dartmouth Institute and the section chief of palliative medicine. She's a graduate of Mount Holyoke and of the Dartmouth Medical School. She completed her internal medicine residency and chief residency at Columbia Presbyterian and her infectious disease fellowship at Duke, trained as a medical epidemiologist with the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC, and then joined the faculty at Duke. To our great good fortune, Kathy returned to Dartmouth in 1999 initially with a section of infectious disease and international health and as a hospital epidemiologist. Since that time, she's held numerous and diverse institutional leadership roles, including serving as an elected member of the Board of Governors, Vice Chair for Quality in the Department of Medicine, Founding Director of the Collaborative Healthcare Associated Infection Prevention Program, Associate Program Director of the Leadership Preventive Medicine Residency, and Medical Director of Schwartz Rounds. In 2012, Kathy's career pathway took a new course when she started her palliative, career, her palliative care fellowship here at DHMC and began developing expertise in narrative medicine through the Columbia University program in narrative medicine. She became the section chief of palliative medicine in 2016, and in that role was instrumental in bringing to fruition the Jack Burns Center for Hospice and Palliative Care. Dr. Kirkland has dozens of peer-reviewed publications related to her work in hospital epidemiology, infection control, and palliative medicine. She's given lectures, led workshops, and facilitated small group sessions on narrative medicine for college undergraduates, graduate students, medical students, pastoral students, residents in internal medicine and surgery, palliative care fellows, and faculty both locally and nationally. Near to my own heart, she's also a champion of medical education in addition to teaching, mentoring, and coaching countless students and residents, she was the founding director of the Internal Medicine Residency Research Program and was the driving force behind the development of our Excellence in Teaching Award and the beloved Golden Goose Pin. Kathy's career has been all about advancing excellence. She sees the capacity in all of us to do better as a system delivering safe and high-quality care, as a community of teachers and learners becoming better in our chosen professions through our interactions with one another, and as individual caregivers, offering the best of ourselves to our patients. Please join, in, join me in welcoming Kat, Dr. Kathy Kirkland as the 2018 William N. Chambers Professor. Wow. Thank you, Kelly. It's a real honor to be here. 
I'm just going to have them remind me about that later. <laughs> Probably going to keep reminding me. Um, it's, it is such an honor to be asked as an internal professor to be um, the William Chambers, to, get, to deliver the William Chambers lecture. And I just want to thank all of you for, for being here. And I hope we can have, have some fun today thinking about how narrative practice makes Better Doctors, uh, which was a deliberately chosen um, word, but I, instead of alienating all of my colleagues who reminded me that there are other people than doctors, which I well know, um, I, this was supposed to be an animated slide that would go from doctors to clinicians to people. But I think narrative practice has something to offer to improve, to, to improve everyone's life. I want to start with gratitude, um, first of all, for grant funding from the Mellon and Gold Foundations, which have supported some of my work in medical humanities and narrative medicine. Secondly, always to Dorothy Byrne and her family for their ongoing support of our palliative care programs and of my own leadership. And finally, to the Chambers family for their generosity uh, in sponsoring this lectureship in memory of Dr. Chambers who devoted his life to the practice of humanistic medicine. The imagination is a powerful instrument in the practice of medicine. The physician's effectiveness increases with empathy, and empathy springs from the ability to imagine the patient's point of view. This encounter hinges on narrative acts, on the patient's ability to tell a story, and on the interviewer's skill in receiving it and hearing its message. Rita Sharon wrote these words back in 1989. She was still an assistant professor of medicine at the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. And since then, she's devoted her professional life to creating and extending the discipline that's now known worldwide as narrative medicine. I'm personally grateful to Rita for her vision but also for her mentorship and support of me over the last especially seven years. So in Rita's words, narrative medicine is the practice of medicine informed by the ability to recognize, absorb, interpret, and be moved by the stories of illness. From what I know of Dr. Chambers, this is the way he practiced medicine. Today, I want to take us into this realm to think together about what narrative competence is, why it's critical to the practice of medicine and, and to healthcare more broadly, and how it can be taught. I'll show you and even hopefully engage you in a couple of brief narrative exercises, and I'll leave time at the end for discussion and reflection. So let me start with the big picture, narrative practice. It's something we humans do every day as we try to make meaning out of our experiences. It's what we do when we talk and listen, when we hear and respond, when we read a book, look at art, listen to music, when we write for a reader, even for ourselves, when we create art or music that will, that will be seen or heard. And narrative practice involves relationship a back and forth, an inherent reciprocity. One gives, another receives, and something happens next that in narrative theory is called, called intersubjectivity. The story stops belonging to its originator, and it begins to be co-owned by the person who receives it. The process of making meaning ends up being a shared one, as the reader brings her own experiences to the interpretation of the author's words. Wolfgang Iser calls the reader a collaborator with the author in realizing the text. A collaborator with the author in realizing the text. And we'll get a taste of this in a few minutes when we do one of the narrative exercises. So narrative medicine is just a type of narrative practice. When she coined the term and began to define it, the construct Rita Sharon 
initially offered was that of the patient as the storyteller and the physician as the attentive recipient of the story. Maybe looking something like this, physician and patient at the bedside, patient telling his history, physician receiving. I'd like to broaden that frame a little bit today. So even staying within this traditional dyad, patient and doctor, it seems to me that there are two storytellers here. The patient who tells his lived experience of the illness and how many versions of that might there be. All medical students have experienced the way the story changes when the attending comes into the room. <laughs> and the doctor, the other storyteller who tells his story from the perspective of medical knowledge, experience, and understanding of evidence. Together, this skillful dyad weaves those two narratives together to form a more complete story of the illness, its diagnosis. Together, they discover what interventions might be effective and acceptable. Together, they co-author the next chapters of the story in the process building a relationship that might itself be healing. This is narrative medicine. We might even call it the co-production of healthcare. But let me expand this frame even further based on what I've learned in palliative care. Because while narrative healthcare is clearly an act of reciprocity, it is not limited to dyads. When a team of professionals from many disciplines equipped with narrative skills to attentively listen, to read closely, to tell carefully, when a team, interdisciplinary team sits together to hear and tell the stories of illness, the resulting narratives are richly layered with the capacity to bring to bear an exponentially greater power to witness, to understand, and to heal. When we can hear not just the stories of our patients and their families, but when we can also listen as carefully and receive the stories of our colleagues, narrative practice becomes potentially transformative for our patients, for ourselves. I've come to think of narrative practice as the core basic science of palliative care. Now, if I had to boil down narrative competence, what healthcare professionals need to master this domain, I would say they need to be able to read, to receive the stories of others, to be able to use them to improve health and well-being, and they need to be able to write, not just to type an EDH note or to cut and paste it, more likely, <laughs> but to recognize and craft their own narratives in ways that others can receive them and use them. And I'm just going to add in the background what I would consider some secondary narrative competencies that are both necessary in order to learn to read and write, but are also strengthened by practicing the skills of reading and writing. Those are things like being able to pay attention Kathleen? <laughs> she left her computer in, in the office today so that she could fully pay attention. Think how many times we're multitasking. You can't read while you're doing something else. Curiosity, openness, reflectiveness, emotional engagement, perspective taking, tolerance for ambiguity, and empathy. And we'll talk more about some of these things. Now, while all members of the healthcare team clearly need these competencies, I would submit that doctors, possibly because of the way we're trained, may be the healthcare professionals most in need of learning or relearning these narrative skills. That's why my title started as doctors. So, how do we teach them? One way is by bringing together doctors with other team members when possible to take part in narrative exercises as a group. Reading literature and writing reflectively are core elements of a narrative medicine curriculum. And I'm gonna give you a chance to experience those um, together in a couple of minutes. But first I wanna talk a little bit more about reading. 
and what happens when we read. Many of you enjoy reading for pleasure. How many? It's wonderful. I invite you to think about the difference between reading a good book for pleasure versus skimming cliff notes for content, plot. When we climb into bed with a book, we don't interrogate it, insisting on knowing what happens, demanding that the author get to the nugget. We only have 15 minutes. Instead, we give ourselves over to a good book. We receive the story in the way the author has chosen to tell it. We form hypotheses, and they're dismantled as the story progresses. We make new ones, often enjoying the complexities and surprises of unexpected plot twists. We emotionally engage with the characters, observing and judging their behavior, liking or disliking them, trusting them or not. We often identify with fictional characters, sympathizing with them, or even feeling their experiences as our own. Think about these two ways of reading in the context of a clinical encounter. What happens when we read? It's been the subject of study, not just by narrative theorists, but by social scientists, psychological scientists, neuroscientists. And an emerging concept in the science of literature is that reading literary fiction is associated with better performance on tests of something called theory of mind. A theory of mind is basically, <coughs> for the purposes of our talk today, another word for empathy. Kidd and Castano, who published this paper in Science a few years ago, define it as the set of affective and cognitive abilities that create our capacity to identify and understand the subjective states of others, allowing navigation of complex social relationships and allowing the empathic responses that support and sustain those relationships. For the purposes of today, just think of theory of mind as empathy. As Kidd and Castano put it, the worlds of literary fiction are replete with complicated individuals whose inner lives are rarely easily discerned but warrant exploration. <clears throat> Think about every day when you walk into the room with a patient. So these authors and other scientists theorize that fiction serves as a kind of simulation lab for real life a setting where it is safer to explore and feel emotions and to practice allowing our expectations to be disrupted. When people read about fictional characters engaging in different activities, functional MRI images show activation of their own brains in the parts of their brain that correspond with those activities. When readers get lost in a book, We've all had that experience, what scientists call emotionally transported by fiction. They expand their own perspectives. They learn new ways of responding to life experiences through the characters' actions in fiction. And they subsequently score higher on tests of empathy, both immediately after reading these selections and, fascinatingly, um, and the effect increases over time. Also fascinating to me is the evidence that non-fictional texts, even good creative non-fiction, like you might read uh, an essay in The New Yorker, uh, which in many ways reads just like fiction, but non-fictional texts do not have this enhancing effect on empathy. In fact, being emotionally transported by non-fiction or getting lost in a non-fiction story is actually associated with a decline in scores of empathy. Why is that? Well, it turns out that non-fictional stories that involve suffering or distress often induce feelings of guilt or obligation on the part of the reader. And those feelings, like I've got to do something about this, interfere with the ability of the person reading to fully emotionally engage and can even short-circuit empathic responses. Fiction, on the other hand, does not follow the reader into real life. 
Even when emotionally transported by a story, the reader knows it is not real and thus does not need to engage in self-protective strategies. So if we think of reading fiction as a safe place to build empathic skills and practice for real life, might a similar mechanism explain the way narrative practice makes more competent and resilient clinicians? I've come to think of the narrative exercises that I facilitate with students, residents, fellows, and colleagues as a sort of sim lab where they can safely identify and explore their own and others' emotional responses to fictional scenes from literature and art, practicing skills that will be needed when facing what might feel like the overwhelming non-fictional suffering of clinical practice. So maybe preparing to witness grief or anger overwhelming sorrow or even joy isn't that different from learning to place a central line. Safely learn in the sim lab. So let's turn for the rest of our time together to the sim lab that's offered by these narrative medicine sessions and try to experience this connection between reading and empathy, the first step of which arguably is recognizing and being curious about one's own perspectives and the range of perspectives of others. So a typical narrative medicine exercise is about an hour long. Usually they occur at midday, middle of a busy clinical day, sometimes at the end of the day. And they involve a group of anywhere from, I don't know, four, six to 20, sometimes more um, people with a facilitator. Um, sitting down with a text. And the text may be a piece of fiction, it may be a poem, it may be a piece of art or a photograph, something that tells a story. And the group reads silently at first. A lot of you know this drill. Then one person reads the piece aloud so that we can hear the sounds of it. And then together we do what's called a close reading of the text, which I'll say more about in a second. Then we write for five minutes to a prompt that derives from the text in some way. I'll give you some examples of that. And then finally, we share our writing with each other, trying to be close readers for each other's work, uh, focusing on not just the content of what we write, but on the ways in which we choose to express ourselves. This close reading is really a central piece of narrative practice. It involves engaging actively with the text, reading not to find out the answer, what's this about, but to widen the field of answers. Doing this involves recognizing that the perspectives of the readers themselves shape the meaning of the text. For this reason, I've used the same text dozens of times with different groups, and I learn something new each time I do it. You can't read in community without discovering this. And once you recognize that others have perspectives, then you recognize that you have perspectives. You might think it would be the other way around, but often it goes that way. And that leads to ambiguity and uncertainty about what does the text actually mean, which through practicing close reading, you can actually learn to tolerate. So close reading, as I said, involves paying attention not just to the plot of the story being told, but also to the form and the structure of the telling. This is a close reading guide that was developed from the Columbia program, and it shows some of the domains that we might explore during a close reading exercise, um, broken down into different domains of observation. So looking at how the, the piece of literature evokes um, our visual, our auditory, our olfactory senses? What are the details of the sensory aspects of a scene? Whose perspective is represented? Um, if more than one, how are these perspectives, how do we know whose perspective is being taken? What's the form that we're looking at? Is it a poem? Is it a fairy tale? Is it a parable, a screenplay, a journal article, an essay? 
what images or metaphors does the teller use to evoke a certain mood? How does the um, how is it structured? Is it told chronologically? Does it jump around? So elements of time. The voice. Um, whose voice tells the story? What first person, second person, third person? How does that change what we understand and influence the content? What's the mood that the text creates in you? And what does the story do? Where does the story bring you? So let's spend a few minutes together doing a narrative exercise as a group. And um, I call this reading as co-creation. I think um, this will illustrate the, the intersubjectivity of the reader and, and the writer in a way that I can't really explain as well as doing it. So we'll start with the text. The title is called Coats. And I've given you only the first line. I saw him leaving the hospital. Some of you have read this poem before. Some of you are seeing it for the first time. So here's some of the questions we might consider as we're doing a close reading. What's the setting of this piece? Anybody? Hospital. Yes. <laughs> It's a softball. <laughs> and what, but consider how it would be different if it was grocery store or library or school or basement. I saw him leaving the hospital. What season is it, do you think? What are you imagining? Winter. Cool. Why winter? We're in winter. Okay, we're in winter now, so she hasn't been emotionally transported yet, which is not surprising. We only have one line. Anybody else think it's winter or a different season? It's just cool. It's cool. cool. So it could be spring, winter, or fall. And how do you know it's cool? Because there is it's called coats. All right, so the word coats is making you maybe think, as you imagine the scene, which many of you are starting to do, it's a natural thing that we do when we read, we're setting it. There's a hospital, and it's cool. Anybody have any other theories? Could be raining. Could be raining. Raincoats are a type of coat. White coats. White coats in a hospital. Okay, so we're not sure. Some people don't know the season yet. Who are the characters? Him. And anyone else? Right. So there's an I and there's a him. Already in the first six lines of this poem, there's two characters introduced. What's the effect of the verb tenses here? Anybody remember what a tense is? <laughs> Past tense. Past tense. I saw him. So it's a reflection. It's something, somebody remembering something that's already happened. What about leaving? Why? Why? Why is he leaving? Okay, so you're starting to ask about what happens next. What is the tense of the verb leaving? How is that different? How if, what if it said, I saw him leave the hospital? So there's a time, there's a time element here. And what is the... Leaving, how does the leaving, what does that evoke for you? Action. Action that hasn't finished yet, right? So we've caught that someone is remembering watching a scene that hadn't finished happening. Someone was leaving. They hadn't finished leaving. He didn't catch them starting to leave, but in the process of leaving. So there's some action and maybe incompletion. Is there a mood that's been created yet? Does anybody feel, feel anything? Somber. Somber. Where is that there? I saw him leaving the hospital. What's somber about that? It's a hospital. It's a hospital. The title. The title, Coats. I guess it's 
it implies that there's more than one coat. Okay, and we don't even have any coats here yet, so <laughs> how does that make you somber? It's a reflection of your own experience. The reflection. There's something in that brings into something, creates into something, but you feel somber when you see leaving the hospital. So that's probably, you know, based on our own experience. So it's really interesting, isn't it, that many people in this room have seen this exact scene. And many people leave the hospital because they got well and they're going home, and that's supposed to be a good thing. Any care managers here? They're probably like feeling really happy. <laughs> but there's something about our experience of leaving the hospital that feels somber to some people. As I walked in today, there was a woman leaving with a coat on who was nearly crying. And I so that's in your mind. So just, so we have one title and six words, and look at all the stuff that we've brought to this. So what's going to happen next? We don't even have a complete sentence here, right? <laughs> okay, we'll complete the sentence. Now we have two lines. I saw him leaving the hospital with a woman's coat over his arm. Here's some things that a group might notice. A new character has been introduced, a woman. A coat appears, and the first sentence ends. So what's happening now? I notice that I'm more interested. You're more interested. Even more than with the first part of the sentence. Does this surprise people? Does this give us new information? What are we thinking this poem is about? Yeah, John. So I found myself prepared after the first uh, six words for disappointment, things that other people were raising, perhaps leaving the hospital because a loved one didn't do well, which looks like it's happening. It could have gone a different way. I saw him leaving the hospital in his white coat, uh, ready to be picked up by his family to go on a trip. You know, there are all sorts of things, but I think what people were reflecting was this anticipation of often what happens when people leave the hospital, <clears throat> and it seems like we're seeing that. So this is, um, so you have a, you had a, one of your hypotheses, and you, you entered the, after the first line, you were holding several hypotheses, right? Could have been a doctor waiting to be picked up to go on vacation, could have been a person leaving because something bad had happened to somebody he loved, the whole range of things in between. He didn't have enough information to know where it was going to go. And you're saying the second line is pushing you towards one of your hypotheses. It's a woman's coat over his arm, people. Where is the person? Where is the dead person here? Where is the, where is the loss? Yeah. That's beautiful. So just looking at the structure of the words and the length of the words themselves, she's kind of seeing a expansion and then a contraction again. So John thinks that there that this woman's coat doesn't bode well. Does anyone have other hypotheses? It just made me cry. I saw that. Because <laughs> I, you know, I've already died. She died, and he's taking the coat. <laughs> right. Look what we do when we read. My gosh. Yeah. Um, a woman he knows may have been admitted to the hospital, and there's no room for her coat. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Any other hypotheses? going home and he's carrying things to the car. Okay. What I've hoped, I hope um, his um, wife is in the hospital to give birth and this is a joyous event. Yes. <laughs> yes, so we're carrying with us desires that we want our reading to fulfill. And at the same time, we're feeling this like 
I don't know if I want to go to the next line. Can we just stop here? Because then I can still preserve my possible interpretation that this all could be okay. Something's worrying us because of that somber mood that many people felt that this isn't going to go okay. But there's still the possibility. So when I did this uh, poem with a group down at Texas Children's Hospital. And one of the women at the table was a psychiatrist who worked um, with transgender patients. And her hypothesis was that this was a person who had just finished having sex reassignment surgery and no longer um, you know, was carrying the woman's coat over his arm on the way out that he had used before. There's nothing here that says that couldn't be right. Not yet. And so we carry our hypotheses, and we try to stay open to the fact that we might be surprised. That's what um, the authors of the science article were saying, that when you engage with a literary text, it pushes you to allow your expectations to be disrupted. So we've talked a little bit. We've got our three characters. How might the characters be related? People have offered hypotheses that are built on these people. But how do you think the I is related to the other two? Is this a teller who knows these characters? Or is this a teller who's watching from a distance? Anonymous, I saw him in a woman's coat, so he doesn't know. That's. Okay, that's possible. The use of the impersonal pronouns. What else could that indicate? It's possible it's, it's how we refer to someone that we've been talking about and already named. I saw him. You know, who, you know who he is, because we've been having a conversation. If you didn't know him, you might say, I saw a man leaving the hospital. I saw him implies some kind of relationship, it seems, <laughs> possibly. What if it just said he was leaving the hospital? I'll leave you with that for a minute. So everybody's wondering what will happen next. Will we go in the direction of the maternity ward? Or will we go in the direction of One West? I saw him leaving. So we cling. To our, we cling to our perspectives, right? And what happens in the room when we're doing this is we argue with one another. I remember doing this poem at OBGYN Grand Rounds, and they were arguing about whether the teller knew the other characters. And they looked to me as if I'm going to resolve this for them <laughs> and give them the answer. And then this dawning that there is no answer. We're creating the answer as we engage with the text. And we're expanding our horizons as we realize that the smart person over here still thinks there's a way that this could be happy. And I can't imagine how he could think that. But we start to engage in relationship as well, right? We start to tolerate each other's um, idiosyncrasies. So what is the effect of the word clearly? Finality. What's that? Sense of finality. It sounds pretty definitive, doesn't it? How do you respond to that? How does it change the story? How does this line change the story? It's such an interesting word because it's not definitely, it's clearly, which is both a word that opens up space when something's clear. Mm -hmm. But it also is, but there's a sadness to it too. So it's an interesting word that it's holding two things at the same time. Clear, 
as in I see something I didn't see before, but then clearly as in certainly. Does anybody have, um, thank you for that. Does anybody have a reaction like, what's so clear about it? <laughs> Some people do, JJ? What, tell me about. I mean, again, I think the idea of it's like certain, but it's a certain perspective. Mm -hmm. Don't put that on me. That's not my perspective. <laughs> right. So whose perspective is this? Whose perspective is it that it's clearly? The observer. I think it implies some more knowledge of the observer or the, the narrator. that they know more of the story than we do right now. So you're kind of raising issues of trust, aren't you? Can we trust this person who's telling us about this scene that they know... How are you feeling about it, Carter? You're going like, you don't know what you're talking about. This is a happy scene. It's gotten, it's, it was dark, and now it's getting darker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he's succumbing to the group. Um, it creates actually a little bit of tension in me because I want to believe that the clear implication of the coat being unneeded anymore, but I'm also thinking, like, where's her purse? What about her shoes? And so I'm, I'm not buying just yet that the clear, the, the clear not needing of the coat means something to me just yet. Because I, I feel like there's more, there's more I want to know before I buy that. And what do we think it means? Go ahead. It almost seems a little bit uh, kind of darkly ironic, like the narrators make the joke about the fact that a dead woman doesn't need a coat. Makes me feel less kind of sympathy for them. So there's an element of maybe sarcasm or cynicism here. Like, clearly, she's not going to need this coat. This is what always happens. You know, I come here to work and make people better, and then, you know, this is what happens. Yeah, so the eye kind of messes with our mind, because when we see an eye, we make all kinds of assumptions that are different from every person, but we don't know the circumstances that are clear there. But then we, So uh, the rest of the text is, gonna do, is going to challenge those assumptions. And so yes. It could be a bright sunny day, for example. You know, it's pretty clear it's a bright sunny day, you don't need a coat. Right. That's a great, great observation. So in the interest of time, I'm just going, this was just to give you a taste. And I'm going to just give you the rest of the poem now, and I'll read it to you. And you can sit with it. And uh, each line of this, we could spend this much time kind of taking it apart and trying to understand what are all the pieces that occur when we hear or, or read a story. And you know how might reading this closely in our clinical interactions change healthcare? <coughs> Coats. I saw him leaving the hospital with a woman's coat over his arm. Clearly, she would not need it. The sunglasses he wore could not conceal his wet face, his bafflement. As if in mockery, the day was fair and the air mild for December. All the same, he had zipped his own coat and tied the hood under his chin, preparing for irremediable cold. So this takes us to a place of very little ambiguity. All of the possibility in the first line sort of resolves itself in the last line of irremediable cold. There's not a lot of room to go. And I'm sorry to leave you in that place, but... <laughs> When we finish doing a close reading together in a group, we then we write together. And just a word about what we do when we write. Uh, Christopher Bolas is a psychoanalyst. He wrote a book called The Shadow of the Object. And I, I like that title because we talk about writing in the shadow of the text or in the shadow of the close reading of the text. And he says that through psychoanalysis, we access the unthought known. The same thing has been said about writing. And I don't know how many of you have had the experience while writing of figuring out what you think through the actual act of writing. Often happens to me when I'm writing up a medical assessment that I don't realize, oh, this is what's going on as I'm literally typing or writing the words. Um, so writing involves 
responding both emotionally and intellectually. And it reveals connections in our thinking and our experiences that we may not have access to in other ways. It's a lot cheaper than psychoanalysis. <laughs> and it activates our creativity and our imagination, which are, are good things to have active. So for the, um, the prompt I have always used with the poem that we just read is to write about something that will not be needed. And you can write about whatever comes to your mind. There's no obligation to write about a coat or about a hospital scene or a clinical experience. You don't have to write a poem. You could write an essay, a short story, a haiku. Um, I think I have a couple of examples of things people wrote in response to this. Uh, let's see, where is it? What did I do? The anniversary gifts he had carefully chosen, the expensive trip tickets, the jewelry all tied up with a bow, the champagne chilling in the sweating silver bucket go unnoticed. The taxi has pulled away, trunk filled with her suitcases as she goes off to find herself. He finds himself alone. He eats the chocolates he had given her for Valentine's Day just last month. And Nintendo. <laughs> that old Nintendo has to go, I argue. You don't even play it anymore. It takes up space and collects dust. You've outgrown the games and have lost one of the controllers. No, he pushes back. You're always working and never have time. I need it. We can buy you a new one with better games, I tempt. No, he says, it's not the same. So just to give you an idea of the range. So for some narrative medicine exercises, I use a visual text, like a photograph or a painting. And I want to spend my last few minutes before we break for discussion looking at a painting with you, which really taught me a deep lesson in perspective taking two years ago when I spent a year doing narrative medicine twice a month with the surgery interns as part of this Gold Foundation-funded experiment. And I see Sienna's here. Sienna Craig's an anthropologist who was in this session with me. So we used this painting. It's graphic, so if you feel queasy, you might not want to look at it. <coughs> Take a minute to look at it if you feel up to it. And just, if you want to jot down some things that you notice, or just make a mental note of things that you notice. So I used this painting as a text with several groups of surgeons, actually. And what fascinated me was the different things that they saw. So the interns, when I showed them this, this painting, focused exclusively on the technical, concrete aspects of the scene. They said things like, there's too much blood. They're not holding the tourniquets tight enough. <laughs> it's not a smart choice to do a guillotine amputation. There's no extra skin to make a flap. <laughs> The blue leg is unrealistic. The guy at the head of the table has three hands. I mean, how much more concrete can you get than that? When Sienna and I drew their attention to the faces of the men standing around the table, faces that to me and to Sienna showed maybe anguish, fear, disgust, resignation, you know what they saw? Boredom. <laughs> and when I asked them to write about a time you looked away, which you'll notice all of those people around the table are, they had trouble coming up with anything. I never look away, they said. And that puzzled us. Months later, I shared the same painting at Surgery Grand Rounds and asked a group of more seasoned surgeons to tell me what they saw. 
This group did not concern themselves with technique or anatomy. And while a nurse in the audience made note of the suffering suggested by the patient's taut muscles and grimacing face, the surgeon's gaze rested on the surgeon himself. They pointed out to me that while everyone else looks away, the surgeon stays focused on the patient and on the job to be done. And it was at that moment that I realized that my prompt to the interns had been exactly wrong. A surgeon's narrative is about not looking away. And so even as their observations had focused on the technical, the interns already identified with the surgeon and the painting. So I changed the prompt at the spur of the moment for surgery grand rounds and asked them to write about a time they didn't look away. And they wrote these beautiful pieces, which I'm not going to share with you today, but just it was such an incredible learning for me to realize that while I and Sienna perhaps identified with the observers standing around the table, the surgeons were looking somewhere else. And what they saw in the same painting was something completely different. A writer, Anais Nen, said, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. When we look together at a piece of art or a literary text with colleagues from other specialties or disciplines, with different levels or types of experience, narrative skills help us to be curious about the different perspectives that emerge rather than defended against them to understand and accept ourselves and others, and simply to notice what we notice. Practicing in these narrative communities, we can then enter clinical encounters with narrative competence, prepared to receive and make use of the stories of others for the improvement of healthcare. So I will stop there and open up for discussion, reflection, questions, etc. Thank you. Thoughts? Yeah. Are certain types of um, fiction, do they lend themselves more towards apathy than others? Like, yeah, so I, I like the dystopian future. <laughs> Interesting. But I know that that would be the greater empathy. So it's interesting that um, I didn't go into depth with this, but it's kind of fascinating that literary fiction, um, things that win like the National Book Award, let's say, versus popular fiction, literary fiction has greater effects on empathy. Popular fiction, the theory is that literary fiction forces you to engage kind of beyond your comfort zone often. It presents you with disruptive concepts with complex characters that don't, don't always behave in um, ways that are easy to understand. And so it forces you to actually engage your theory of mind, your um, set of skills that allow you to try to understand the subjective experience of someone other than yourself, truly other. Whereas Again, the theory is that popular fiction, things like the Amazon bestseller list, it's more like, it's like watching, um, you know, West Wing or something. It's a little, it's like you like the characters, they're kind of like you, the story's good. You don't have to, um, it's not hard to identify with the characters or to understand them because it's written to be more of an entertainment than, um, a sim lab, so to speak. And so um, that that's what the science would say. I don't know what it would say about dystopian futures, but I imagine some of them might be... Yeah, some of them are literary, and I assume some of them are more popular, and probably the ones, you know, that keep you up at night are the ones that are increasing your empathy. Kathy, would you say something about how the graphic novel fits into this process? Um, you know, I don't know about studies with graphic novels, but I guess I would um, 
I mean, I've worked with graphic novels, and I think that they're ripe for this kind of close reading. So I, I imagine they do the same things somewhere, you know, maybe harnessing both the, the art and the, the words to, to engage people who see things, who use different parts of their brain to engage with stories. Kelly. I'm wondering if you've done narrative sessions with interdisciplinary groups, and if so, mm -hmm. how that differs from groups that are more uniform, you know, surgery interns. Yeah. So I've done, um, well, surgery grand rounds and medicine grand rounds are interdisciplinary, so we did that today. I do a lot of work with the, pal it's part of our palliative care curriculum. We meet a couple of times a month to do narrative medicine with our fellows, and we've um, welcomed in other members of our team. So we often have nursing, social work, um, volunteer staff there, and I think it enriches the, um, the experience, like, I, that's my experience of interdisciplinary work always. I would love to work with um, teams like the CF team or the ICU team. We're bringing together people, um, the HEMONC team. I know Rita's done work with interprofessional groups at, at Columbia. I think there's the more diversity, the better. And certainly in community groups, you get just a whole vast expanse of people's experience. And they may read this poem completely differently. Um, yeah. Um, thank you very much. Wonderful contribution. Um, so when you were introducing the concept of narrative, um, I had um, the impression of um, stillness or things are not evolving or changing. If we go back to the bedside and we have our relationship to the patient, there is this moment that you describe in the narrative, but it changes from moment to moment. Mm -hmm. Do you experience the patient, how you, based on your experience, what this wonderful phrase from Ani is saying there, but things are changing every moment. Yeah. So, and how do you, you know, and it's really kind of coming from what you experience yourself, what's triggering you? You know, a patient like a month ago was very angry about the whole situation. So can you stay calm in those kind of stormy waters when the patient's anger? Do you take it personal? Right. Do you relate to that patient? And, and those moments change. Do you give it like a silence of the moment just to kind of get this out of it, you know, just let it kind of settle a little bit and then relate again? So I think, I wonder, I'm not sure how much that gets into the education and the discussions. And I'm just curious about the narrative seems to be a moment frozen time, hmm. while in the in the exchange with the patient, things are changing any moment, and so you just have to be trying to be as best you can there. Yeah, I mean, it's harder to do a close read as a listener than it is as a reader, right? Because the, you don't have the text right in front of you. Um, but I do think practicing these skills with a text that's safe, it's not gonna, you know, it, you can slow it down and you can, you know, build the skills that it does help you in um, a clinical encounter. Even if it's just teaching you, I need to pause on this chapter, I'm not sure what was going on in a complex literary novel. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna read on to the next chapter. I'm gonna, let this settle with me for a while. And so in a clinical encounter, you might just sort of like, whoa, you just told me information that blows me away. Let's just stop. Or, you know, you start to realize I have, I know what to do when a narrative pushes me off balance because I've practiced this in a room with a poem I didn't like. Why do we have to read this? It upsets me, it's sad, I don't wanna be sad. And by and when you think about, like I told you, I've read that poem, you know, hundreds of times, and you can still try to, you can go back and you can take it one line at a time, and you can experience what that thing is where a story is one thing when you have six words, and then it becomes something more complex, and it just keeps, going, and so even a static narrative that has the same lines is a, it's unfolding, and it's, 
continuously unfolding. And every time, as a reader and a writer, you engage with it, it unfolds again in a new way. So it's not exactly the same, but I think neither is sticking a you know, central line into a plastic neck in the sim lab. But if you do it enough, then when you find yourself in a tough situation in the ICU, it's familiar. And so you can erase some of those feelings of anxiety and, and distress. But I guess to me that's what makes clinical medicine and narrative medicine so rich is exactly what you described. Yeah. There are the media to develop narratives. There's like soap operas, film. There are some films called tearjerkers for like a reason. Yeah. How's that for empathy? And have you used any, any films? Yeah, I don't know. Um, Could you repeat the question? It was, are, what about other media like soap operas, films, etc.? And I think that what my takeaway is the general, the more sort of complex the text, whether it's so a. a foreign film versus a soap opera is probably going to be kind of like literary fiction versus popular fiction, that it's the, the complexities of a story that engage the theory of mind and exercise it. Um, but I don't know, I know I saw one paper about films and how we choose to allow ourselves to be sad in a movie when in life, we pretty much try to avoid that. So there's something about, there's some kind of pleasure in the process of allowing our emotional engagement to happen, even when it's negative. So, all right, well, thank you all.